Well, it's a fact of life. People love being right. Maybe even more than that, people love being right when everybody thinks that they're wrong. To be proven right after everybody thinks that you're wrong is to be vindicated. And it's so sweet. Just two months ago, I I got to feel this sweet sense of vindication. Over the Christmas break, as many of you know, temperatures all across the country got low, really low. Even here in Jacksonville, the temperature got below 10 degrees for three straight nights in a row. Now, normally when this happens, especially here in Alabama, where uh, pipes aren't designed to withstand low temperatures like that, people tell you to let your faucets drip, let them run overnight to to protect them from freezing and bursting. There was only one problem for this with me, though. My wife, Bailey, and I, we were actually going out of town that week, going up to Louisville to visit family for Christmas. So we'd be gone for about a week and a half. No, no one would be at our house to let the faucets drip. So if a pipe did happen to freeze and burst, if the water was on, probably just flood the whole house. It would be a disaster. And so I've only been a homeowner for like two years. This is my first house. So I was really nervous about it. I wasn't sure what to do. I, I, I couldn't let my faucets drip for a week. That sounded like a bad idea. I could ask somebody to come over every night. That also sounded like a bad idea. Too much to ask for somebody to do. The other option was I could completely turn off the water to my house and drain all the pipes of the water by turning on the faucets and letting them drain out. No water in the pipes, no frozen pipes. No, no water in the pipes, no way to flood the house. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking this is a little bit crazy. This is overboard. To be honest, when I was doing it, when I was thinking of it, I myself thought that this was crazy. I myself thought that this was overboard. But I decided to do it anyway. For me, it was too big of a risk not to. So I did it before we left for Christmas vacation. I turned the water off to the house. I let all the water drain out of all the pipes. And after that, I pretty much forgot about it for a couple of days. I had done it, I was, at, I was on vacation, I wasn't worried about the pipes anymore. But once that cold weather did come, I remember logging on to Facebook and, and seeing so many people, several people I knew had pipes freeze overnight, some people even had water damage. I'm sorry I forgot, many of you who are here tonight probably experienced some of that. I, I didn't think about how this illustration would make you feel, I'm sorry. The icing on the cake was when we were in Louisville, we went to one of my favorite pizza places that were, that, that's there for lunch. And when we got there, the door was locked. We tried to go inside. The owner came out and told us that they were closed for business because the pipes froze and burst and caused a disaster. And even though I wasn't going to get my favorite pizza for that day, as much as I hated that my friends, many of you even, had pipes freeze. I'm not going to lie. I had a deep sense of vindication wash over me in that moment. I wasn't rejoicing in anyone else's misfortune, but I was glad that I did what I did. Made me feel right. My fears weren't unjustified. I wasn't crazy. I was prepared. I was vindicated. And although right now to the world and to many people, Christians might seem crazy, The Bible promises that we will be vindicated. We'll be vindicated because 
God, who is the compassionate and righteous judge, promises that he will bring justice. In fact, that's really the main point I want us to take away from the parable that we're going to look at tonight. If you're a note taker, it's this. Since God is a compassionate and righteous judge, we ought to persist in prayer and persist in hope. I'll say it again. Since God is a compassionate and righteous judge, we ought to persist in prayer and persist in hope. If you have your Bibles, the parable that we're going to be looking at tonight is the parable of the persistent widow. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. It's Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. should be on the screen, but if you've found it in your Bible, read along silently while I read aloud. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said... In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this series on the parables. Thank you for your wisdom. Father, I pray that as we study this passage that we would be encouraged, convicted, helped. Father, I pray that you would help me to preach your word with boldness and power. I pray all of these things to the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. When we come to the parable of the persistent widow, say that five times fast, we we notice that at the beginning of it there's this, this short explanation Luke says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So even before we get started, we're actually told the purpose of this parable. And so then what happens in this parable? Well, first, Jesus introduces the first character, a judge. And he describes this judge as one who neither fears God nor respects man. And this is important Because in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Speaking of the Old Testament law, Jesus responds by saying this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and prophets. So Jesus summarizes the entire law by saying you ought to love God and love people. Yet this judge neither fears God nor respects people. And so Jesus is just basically saying that this judge is not righteous. He's a bad judge. He's wicked. He, he violates the two most important commandments of God. He neither fears God 
nor respects man. If there's any question about it, Jesus actually describes this judge as unrighteous right here in our text in verse 6. But if we keep going, not only do we have this unrighteous, wicked judge, but we also have this widow. What's important to understand about widows and widows in Jesus's time is that they were often pretty poor and powerless. This is why the church is and was originally called to take care of orphans and widows, kind of in the same category as far as status, as far as how much they had. And so, so far in this parable, you've got the powerful judge who's wicked. You've got this powerless widow. Apparently, she's been defrauded or taken advantage of in some way because she keeps approaching this judge for justice. And the unrighteous judge, he's not concerned with justice at all. He just grants her justice because she won't leave him alone. She's annoying. And Jesus says the point is this. If an unrighteous judge who doesn't care gives justice because of the persistence of the widow, won't God, who is a righteous judge, give justice to and vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night. And so it's an argument from lesser to greater. If the lesser does X, the greater will do X even more. And the thing that will happen here, in both examples, lesser and greater, is justice. God will answer and vindicate his elect. What's interesting here is that Luke says that one of the reasons Jesus tells this parable is because we ought to always pray. Do you remember that? Which means if God is the righteous judge compared to the unrighteous judge, we Christians are to find the widow to be our example. We're to be like her, persistent in prayer. But this does raise all sort of questions about prayer, doesn't it? For, for example, is Jesus teaching here that we can kind of twist God's arm into giving us anything we want if we're persistent enough in prayer? It's a legitimate question. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching because we know from other passages of Scripture that there are petitions that God won't grant, even from believers. Think of a text like James 4.3. It says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So if you ask wrong, if you have bad motives, or if you're uh, caught up in a sin, like not loving your wife, your prayers could be hindered. So this passage on persistent prayer doesn't override what Scripture says elsewhere about prayer, but instead it serves to encourage us in the types of prayers that we know we ought to pray. Prayer that aligns with what God has actually promised us in Scripture. Promises like the promises to take care of us, to comfort us, to convert people, to make us more like Christ, and for prayers for the return of Christ. These are all just examples of things that God has explicitly promised to us that we ought to pray for. 
But this also raises another question, because if God has promised to do all these things in his word, why do we need to pray for them? If God has promised them and his promises are sure, why do we need to pray about it? Well, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the warning passages. We talked about how they're actually the means God uses to preserve you. Similar to prayer here, God, in his sovereignty, uses the answering of your prayers to accomplish his will. To to show himself glorious and powerful, God commands us to pray for things and then answers those prayers. And that's the way that God has decided for certain things to work. Prayer is one of the ordained means that God uses to accomplish his will. But you might also wonder after reading this this parable, does God view us like the persistent widow? Are we just kind of annoying him into action? And again, the answer to this is no, because that's the whole point of this parable. Only an unrighteous judge who is a wicked lawbreaker is annoyed into justice. Our God is compassionate and cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. For for our God, compassion and justice flow naturally from his nature as good and from our relationship to him as father. Remember, this parable is an argument from lesser to greater. The unrighteous judge is the lesser, and our God is the greater. The compassionate, righteous judge who cares for his elect. And if you're a Christian, that means you. What Jesus says here about God hearing the elect who cry out day and night for justice reminds me what it's like for my wife and I having become parents six months ago. Because there's something about hearing your baby cry that just unsettles you a bit. Especially for my wife, Bailey. When when our daughter, Rosemary, is crying, sometimes I can kind of ignore it, especially when I know it's because she's tired or she just wants to be picked up. And my wife can't ignore it, though. When the baby is crying or whining, or the latest thing that she's discovered is, like, just grunting at us, which I don't know if that's normal, but... That's what she's doing. My wife has to do something. Pick her up, play with her, something. Because it's ingrained in a parent, right? To hear and respond. But what's interesting here is that instead of God being described as a father, just like we saw last week, in this parable, God is described and compared to a judge. And when you think of a judge, you don't normally think of fatherly, do you? You think impartial laying down the law. But what Jesus shows us here is that even in his justice, God cares for his people like a father. He will bring them justice and vindication. One of the things that this means is that no matter how discouraged we get in this life, no matter what our circumstances are, if we're facing persecution, we must make time for prayer. I say make time, but really what we need to do is realize what is happening in prayer and embrace the privilege that prayer is. We get to 
boldly approach the throne of God and lay down our burdens and anxieties on him. We get to praise God in prayer. We get to petition him for our needs. So do you pray? Do you pray at all? Do you pray regularly? When we read a text like this, we can all be concerned with, you know, how many prayers it takes to get to the center of what we want. But while we think of it this way, we should really come with a text like this and think, do I even really pray regularly? Am I even getting close to what would be called persistent prayer? Just as desperately as you need the word of God in your life, you, you desperately need to be praying. One of the reasons that we don't pray as much as we should is because, honestly, sometimes we don't know what to pray for. We go to God and we thank him for waking us up and giving us food, and then we ask him for a couple of things, and then we're kind of done, right? We might pray for 30 seconds every day. I actually didn't realize how bad my prayer life was until a class that I took in seminary on spiritual disciplines. One day, our professor actually challenged us to pray longer. He told us to, you know, next time we pray, take a timer and see how long we actually prayed. And to be honest, my quiet time prayers were about a minute long. So after that, he told us to get a timer and try something else. He told us to set a timer for five minutes, hit start, and pray, and see if we could pray for all of the five minutes. So I thought, five minutes, no big deal, I'll do that. The first time I tried to pray for five minutes straight in my quiet time, it felt like an eternity. When my timer actually went off and I was done, I mean, I felt like a prayer warrior for praying for five whole minutes by myself. But as I did it more and more, you know what happened? I, I began to realize just how many things I needed to be praying for. How many people in situations that God would call to mind that I needed to be praying for, but I wasn't because I was rushing and hurrying through my prayers and hadn't disciplined myself to just endure the uncomfortableness of not knowing what to pray. It was so uh, formative for me that I actually want to challenge you guys to try that this week. In your time of prayer, in your time of Bible reading, whatever time you do it, morning, night, at lunch, take a little timer. See if you can pray for five minutes straight. See if you can do that all week. I'd love to hear next week how some of you did and what the Lord taught you about prayer and trying that little exercise. The other thing, though, that helped me pray more and pray better was that same class, we read a book by the professor called How to Pray the Bible or Praying the Bible. And so what is praying the Bible? Well, it's just when you read one line or sentence of Scripture, maybe the Psalms or a New Testament letter, and you just pray according to what you read. For example, Psalm 48, verse 1 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. So I pray, God, would you help me to see and meditate on your greatness today? Would you be lifted up in my heart in my mind right now as I pray to you. And I'd read verse 2. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. 
So then I pray something like, God, would you help me to find my joy in you and only you? Would you increase my enjoyment of you so much so that I would find my deepest satisfaction in you? And what this does is it keeps us from praying the same things over and over again. But it also helps you to pray for things and pray things that you might not normally pray because the Bible guides you into what to pray for. But I think it's really simple. Read the Bible and pray what you read. That will help your prayers. Whatever you do, pray. We ought to persist in prayer. But not only did Jesus tell this parable so that we would persist in prayer, but Luke says that he also told this parable so that we would persist in hope. Persist in hope. Verse 1 says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So let's recap. We have the widow who is persistent and we have the wicked judge who gives her justice. Then we see Jesus showing that this wicked judge serves to highlight how much more God listens to the prayers of his people. And not only that, we actually see that the response of God to those prayers is justice. Did you see that? Jesus says that he won't delay over them, but will give them justice speedily. Then Jesus ends this parable with this rhetorical question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so while this text is about prayer in general, we do actually see that specifically. It seems to be about the prayers of God's people who are struggling who are facing persecution. Whether it's persecution or oppression, the text seems to hint in that direction. Why do I say that? Well, remember that in the parable, Jesus chooses a widow, an often powerless and oppressed lowly person who's crying out for justice. We also see that Jesus says that God will give justice or even vindication to his elect who cry to him day and night. So the people of God are crying out day and night, and the answer to this cry is what? It's justice. And really, this is a theme we actually see all over Scripture, that the people of God are often oppressed and persecuted. And the answer is not for them to strike back or take revenge, but it's to wait on God. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's a, there's a purifying effect that our suffering and persecution has on us right now. It's a kind of judgment, but the kind that's for God's people to purify them. And it begins now. But at the end of time, same passage says that God will judge the world. But it won't be a purifying or refining type of judgment. It will be full and final It's hard to imagine crying out for this kind of justice from God, praying for this. 
Because we don't live in the same severe persecution that the early church and even churches around the world today currently live in. We don't experience persecution like places in the Middle East or China where Christians are still regularly imprisoned or killed for following Christ. But God sees and God hears the cries of his children. And there's coming a day when King Jesus will return to execute justice for all those who oppressed and persecuted for the sake of his name. In Revelation, a book about the end of the world, it's another place where we can understand what's going on here. Chapter 6, verse 9, it says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What Jesus wants us to know is that this event, his return, is sure. He will return. and He will give justice to his people. But when he returns, the question is, will he find faith on the earth? He will return, but asks this rhetorical question almost like a warning that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Will he find faith on the earth? Will you be found faithful? Or will you lose heart? The warning that Jesus gives here kind of reminds me of one of the downsides that I found to my recently reestablished efforts to wake up early. I'm waking up early these days because I like working out, and if I don't wake up early and do it before work, I, I, I won't be able to do it at all. The first week, it's always super hard to wake up, roll out of bed, and hit the snooze. But after a while, it gets easier. The reason it gets easier is because when you start waking up early, you just fall asleep earlier at night. But that means that I've also turned into the guy who can't stay up past 10 o'clock. Whenever Bailey and I try to watch a movie, if it goes past 9.30, I'm talking like on the dot, nine times out of 10, Bailey's look over at me and I'm knocked out, cold, snoring. I can't stay up. So the question is never whether or not the movie will end. The question is always, Will I be awake to see the end of the movie? Then I have to ask the embarrassing question the next day. Hey, whatever happened in that movie? Sometimes she tells me, sometimes she doesn't. It's like the rhetorical question Jesus asks here. There's no question whether or not he will return. The question is whether or not he'll find faith on the earth. One of the things that this means is that we ought to remember, even as we persist in hope, we ought to remember to pray for our enemies. Pray that they would be saved by God. Because if we're anything like God, we, we don't delight in judgment. We don't want them to face God's judgment, even for persecuting us. We want them to turn from their persecution. Just like the Apostle Paul experienced the forgiveness and grace that we've experienced in the gospel. This is why we pray for our enemies, because we fear God. As Hebrews puts it in, 10, in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you pray for your enemies, those who persecute you? 
Another thing that this means, though, is that we ought, we ought to persist in hope. What do I mean? How, how, what does that look like practically? Well, it's, it's like what we looked at last semester and what we see in this, in this parable. The primary way we persist in hope is by remembering our future that God has promised to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, it uses some of the same language that we find here in this parable. This is what it says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So how do we persist in hope? How do we not lose heart? We look to the things that are unseen and eternal. College, transient. Who you marry, what career you work in, where you live, how much money you have. It's all transient. It's all temporary. Even your suffering is transient. And the Lord promises that all of your suffering will seem like light and momentary when it's compared to what is eternal, the eternal weight of glory. Jesus calls us to hope in that. That's how we persist in hope, by hoping in that which persists. We can tell, we can often tell what we are hoping in by what we choose to find comfort in in times of struggling and suffering. When you feel like things aren't going your way or you feel persecuted, you're struggling, feel like you're being shamed for your faith, where does your mind turn to? What do you look to? What ideas do you look to to give yourself comfort? Is it the idea that eventually everything is uh, just going to work itself out? Eventually, you'll find a job you like Eventually, you'll find somebody to get married to. Eventually, you'll make enough money to do this or to do that. Is that how you comfort yourself? Because if it is, you've got to understand that while those things might happen, it's not rock solid. It's not guaranteed like the eternal weight of glory is. When you're facing trial and temptation and persecution, comfort yourself in this fact. That this life is not all that there is. And if you have put your faith in Christ, although at one time you deserve to face the judgment of God as a lawbreaker, God's judgment is not against you because you're in Christ. It's all because Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth and lived the life you should have lived, perfect, never sinning, and died the death you should have died under the weight of sin and the wrath of God. And that is why you're forgiven. Because the God who is perfect in judgment and perfect in justice looks on you but sees Christ because you're hidden in him. And because of that, you have an unshakable hope in eternity. And this is what your hope must be in. It can't be in anything else. Because anything else is sinking sand. It's transient. This also means that the, the flip side of this is also true. Because just like God is a loving father who welcomes the sinner home, looked at that last week, God is also a righteous, 
judge, who will judge the world in truth and righteousness. And if you don't have faith in Christ, if you're without Christ, that means you'll pay for your sin on that day. And it's not a defect in God. God's goodness will find fault in you. And his justice will be against you. So, if you're not trusting in Christ, would you turn from your sin? And would you put your faith in Jesus? Because Jesus is returning. He's returning soon. And when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith in you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all the ways that you teach us in your word, through your parables. Father, I thank you for all the ways that you have been kind to us our entire lives. Father, I pray for those who, even now, we don't know their names, we don't know who they are, but they're facing unimaginable persecution for the sake of your name. Father, we pray that you would come quickly. We pray, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Set this world right. Bring justice. Father, we also pray that you would save so many, that so many would turn from their sin, find grace, find forgiveness, find joy through trusting in Jesus Christ. We pray and we ask these things in his name. Amen.